Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Prithviraj Bose from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, and Dr. Andrew Kirkendall from the University of South Florida and H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. They will be discussing how they tailor current treatment options for different patients with essential thrombocythemia, depending on their presentation and previous medical history. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Integrating Current Evidence and Individualized Treatment Regimens into Clinical Practice for Patients with Myeloproliferative Neoplasms. For more information on the experts, along with a link to the complete program, including additional educational activities, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. Hi, and thank you very much for listening in. My name is Andrew Kirkendall. I'm from Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, and I'm joined here by my colleague, Prithviraj Bose from MD Anderson. And today we're going to discuss our approaches to patients with essential thrombocythemia. We're going to have a dialogue about what we think is important for practitioners to know about the management and get into some areas where there may be a little bit, it may be less clear what to do and hopefully have a meaningful discussion here. To kick this off, Prithvi, I'm going to start with a, a hypothetical case, but really not too hypothetical because I think we see I think we see patients like this quite frequently. But considering essential thrombocythemia, I think what if I told you about a patient who's maybe 37 years old, younger male who comes into your clinic and is found to have platelets of 1.6 million, otherwise counts are relatively normal, and you approach this by doing a workup for iron deficiency which comes back showing that the iron stores are normal. And then ultimately you find that he has a CalR mutation. So walk me through how you'd approach that patient and what are some considerations that you'd have when thinking about a case like that? Yes, sure, Andrew. Now, this is an area that is slightly gray, I think. So, but let's start with the with some of the, the basics here and what we know about these patients. So, you're describing a very low-risk patient by the revised Ipset thrombosis risk stratification, which was also endorsed by the NCCN. So, this is a patient that's younger than 60, does not have a JAK2 mutation, and has not had a history of thrombosis. So what do we know in these patients from the Spanish data is that aspirin probably does more harm than good in these patients because the bleeding risk outweighs the clotting risk. And so generally, these are patients I'm not putting on aspirin. But I think where it gets a little murky is what to do with a cytoreductive therapy. Again, they are very low risk for thrombosis, but we know that above 1.5 million platelets is when you get into the risk of bleeding because of acquired von Willebrand's disease. And generally, in the absence of any risk factors for thrombosis, I'm certainly a believer in not giving them cytoreductive therapy. And this was borne out, as Andrew, by a trial from England showing that if you were young and no, had no history of a clot, did not have platelets over 1.5 million. So if all those parameters were met, these are very low-risk patients, you did not have any benefit from hydroxyurea. And that was a randomized trial looking at hydroxyurea added to aspirin versus aspirin alone. And again, those patients were younger, no history of clot or bleed, and also no uh, super high platelets as defined by 1.5. 
So in those patients, there is no benefit for cytoreductive, and I normally do not do it. So really observation, no cytoreduction, no aspirin, but your case that you just presented has platelets of 1.6 mil. There, we, there, it's just above 1.5. So there, of course, I would test for AVWD. And here's what I want to know what you would do, Andrew, because I think approaches are a little bit different here. Some will cytoreduce only if AVWD is detected. And my approach tends to be if they're over 1.5, they're not in my comfort zone from a bleeding standpoint. And generally, I will cytoreduce even if I don't pick up the AVWD and just get them down to a quote-unquote safer level. Yeah, I think it certainly is not a one-size-fits-all approach for these patients. I think certainly we're checking for acquired von Willebrand's disease. I think sometimes uh, we do see that run on the low side. I get stuck sometimes when you see that kind of in this intermediate zone, but patient doesn't have any reported history of easy bleeding or bruising or anything like that. Uh, certainly, I'm also with you on avoiding using aspirin in many of these patients as we think that increase the risk for bleeding. We don't do much to protect from thrombosis. I've generally not been cytoreducing patients in unless I feel like we can accomplish something from the symptomatic benefit for these patients. But you know, I think that I certainly have a low threshold. I think these are patients where you're talking pretty extensively about the symptoms they have and really trying to isolate if they have platelet-dependent symptoms, right? Headaches, frequent headaches, ringing in the ears, tinnitus, something that that is bothering them and maybe, maybe impacting them that they haven't really thought about. And certainly if something like that is present, I think that I can improve by lowering the platelet count and potentially also getting that, that benefit of maybe lowering their bleeding risk, I'm certainly doing that. I think the question then I'll pose back to you is in a young patient like this, and let's say you do decide to reduce for some reason, what are you just choosing to decide to reduce with? And how does that discussion go in, in your clinic? Yeah, again, I'd like to emphasize for our listeners that thrombosis is not the concern here, right? So with CALR, we know that the thrombotic risk is very low. And typically these very high platelets, Andrew, are in the type two CALR. So that really is not the concern, but the bleeding is to some extent. So in that, in a young patient like that, I would like to go with interferon, but you know, because of its lack of lack of uh, genicity and the genotoxicity, not to say that hydroxyurea has that, but as the field is familiar with, there is always some persistent concern with hydroxyurea in terms of it, whereas what is proven is hydroxyurea does increase your risk, of course, squamous cell, basal cell, cancer, those, of course, are real. So anyhow, in this young, very low risk for thrombosis patient, I would want to go with interferon. But again, as we all know, interferons don't work that quickly, and it would take a while to reduce the, the platelet count to a safe level for me is usually under a million. So I think I would go with hydroxyurea or enagrolide even perhaps, although enagrolide is harder to, to, to tolerate. So more likely than not hydroxyurea, but hopefully with a transition plan to interferon once I can get the, the bleeding risk down or the platelets at a more reasonable level. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, an interesting way to think about it as far as kind of you have to understand not just which agent you want long term, but also what are what are you expecting from a, a chronicity, right? For the impact of the agent you use and being able to achieve these shorter term and longer term goals. You know, I think you're know, thinking about these longer term goals. I think that's honestly where a lot of um, 
patient's concerns are, especially if they present at a young age, is not maybe understanding that they have a disease that they're getting diagnosed with, but their main concern is not day-to-day living. It's what does this mean for them 10, 15, 20 years down the road? And when a patient like this, CalR mutated 37, 38 years old, what's that conversation for you look like with the patient as far as what are you telling them this means for them when they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s? And what are your goals for them? So I'm usually telling them that this does not mean anything in terms of survival concerns. Young patients with ET as a whole, not just CalR, several groups have published that young patients with ET do extremely well. So they have a very indolent disease course in general in terms of a disease progression, right? Those risks are very low. So I'm trying to allay any fears in that regard and just point out that, hey, your only real risk, if anything, is the bleeding. And then as you mentioned, Andrew, all that many platelets can cause symptoms. They can get microcirculatory symptoms. Now, there you are in a bit of a bind because aspirin is the best drug for those. And and then you're also saying that, we also say that aspirin increases the bleeding risk. So that is a bit hard, perhaps, in that situation. But yes, it's really about the symptoms and about the bleeding. Like I said, I do try to get the platelets down if they're over 1.5. The other thing, just I wanted to get your opinion on this, Andrew. Do you ever get into the type 1, type 2 story? I do. I think certainly, I think that it's something that obviously many of our patients with MPNs are highly motivated to know as much about their disease as possible. And I think it's, what I've learned is if I fail to go over things that we know something about, right, if I fail to mention it or talk about it, ultimately they seem to bring it to my attention the next visit because a lot of times they're going and reading a lot about this as well. And they want to know, you know, what does this mean if I have this type one versus type two? And you've read the next generation sequencing, the NGS reports we get. A lot of times, if it is a type one or type two, they start to go into what that means. And so I'd rather that information come from me because I think there's a lot of nuance there and there's a lot we don't know. I think all we know now is that type one CalR mutations are seen more frequently in myelofibrosis than type two. And type two seem to be seen with equal or maybe slightly more frequency in ET. I don't think that we necessarily know that means that type 1 CalR ET is more likely to turn into myelofibrosis or more likely to have a disease transformation. I think that there may be something biologically distinct about type 1 versus type 2, where you're more likely to see fibrosis in one over the other. I think most patients have type 1 CalR, so I think we feel more comfortable with that. I think when we do see type 2 CalR mutations, it uh, presents a bit of a, bit of a challenge because it's more of an unknown. No, absolutely, and extremely well put, Andrew. So just for our listeners, let me very quickly summarize. So like Dr. Karkandal said, in primary myelofibrosis, type 1 CalR is more common than type 2 CalR, and type 2 CalR is prognostically adverse, not type 1 is the good one to have. In ET, type 1 and type 2 are about equally prevalent. Uh, Type 2s give you the high platelet counts, but a very low bleeding risk. And there's just been some data, by no means universally agreed upon or seen in multiple studies, there's just been some data that has suggested that type 1s may progress more to post-ETMF. And we really don't know the significance of some of these findings, as Andrew just said. Yeah, and I think, it, but it is interesting to, to, as you mentioned, that when you're looking at this prognostically, it's tough to tell a 38-year-old exactly what to expect with a disease they've just been diagnosed with. But I agree. I think that these are 
often the types of patients that end up cycling through multiple oncologists because the oncologists retire <laughs> during the course of their disease. And so I, I think that the goal really is to have a normal, you know, long-lasting life expectancy. I often talk about talk with patients that we have kind of two goals, which is one, we worry about the length of life, obviously, but really what we're focused in, on is in being able to acquire that length of life by preventing the things that could shorten it, right? So preventing the major hemorrhages, preventing thrombosis. But at the same time, we feel we often are more worried about the day-to-day, -day, getting that length of life to be quality. And so that's where it comes into to assessing symptoms. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to bring up with ET patients. You referenced it earlier. There's a lot of microvasculatory symptoms that come up, but then there's other symptoms such as you know, fatigue and headaches and lack of concentration, brain fog. How are you talking about your talking to your patients about these types? I mostly regard them as the ones I run into mostly are the micro, microvascular ones. And I find that aspirin, particularly BID aspirin, is very helpful. Now, again, I don't really know what to do when someone's platelet count is that high and I'm not supposed to give aspirin other than bring it down, bring it down with cytoreductive therapy, reduce the risk of AVWD by getting those numbers down, and that may then allow me to use aspirin. I think aspirin is very helpful for the microvascular. And then, of course, there's things like fatigue, like you said, fatigue, pride, night sweats, constitutional stuff, megaly. Now, those, of course, would respond more to our conventional cytoreductive agents, and that may be a discussion then to do those for that reason, if not for thrombosis reduction. Perfect. I think we've gone over this case quite well. I've enjoyed your insights there, but I'll let you, I'll let you present a case and turn it on me a little bit. Yeah, sure. So let's go to the other end of the spectrum then. So let's go with an older patient of 60 plus. So certainly the majority of our patients will be older, although ET, you, know, you do see a good number of young patients, but still the, uh, the majority would still usually be older. So let's say 60 plus, they've had a TIA in the past and they do have a JAK2 mutation. How would you approach that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that certainly we're now we're dealing with probably the more common case, right? Older patient, JAK2 mutated. We know 50 to 60% of patients with ET are going to have JAK2 mutations. And I, and I think that we're talking about essential thrombocythemia. I think we can, when we have JAK2 mutations, you can start to think about myeloproliferative neoplasms kind of as a group of diseases that are approached somewhat similarly. And I think when we're thinking about the data we have for ET, we often realize that we're pulling from data from PV as well. And sometimes that's not appropriate when you're thinking about CalR mutated disease because CalR mutations don't typically occur in polycythemia vera patients. But it is maybe helpful for when you're thinking about data for JAK2 mutated ET patients. So I think that, you know, first of all, you're presenting a case of a patient who is high risk, right, by the revised IPSAT criteria that you mentioned. I'm obviously has a history of a TIA, which would make him high risk, also older than 60 and has a JAK2 mutation, which would make him high risk, even if he'd never had this history of a TIA. And so right off the bat, you realize that this is someone who is higher risk for having a thrombotic event. And so certainly that, if that was to occur, that could severely limit the quantity of life the patient has left and certainly the quality of life as well. So that's something that you want to be quite thoughtful about when you're trying to initiate therapy. And so with these JAK2 mutated patients, we typically are recommending baby aspirin every single day. We're recommending a cytoreductive therapy as well. But then the one thing I'd also say is I'm typically looking at their hemoglobin, their red blood cell count and hematocrit as well, just to make sure that maybe I'm not missing someone who's on the verge of being considered polycythemia vera. And I think this is where bone marrow biopsies can be quite helpful, but then 
Aside from the aspirins and getting a good diagnosis, you know, we're thinking about a cytoreductive therapy. You've mentioned them before. Our main options are hydroxyurea and interferon uh, in the front line. Certainly ruxolitinib as a second line agent is available. But a lot of times I'm sitting down and having a discussion with the patient over what are we trying to accomplish with this cytoreductive therapy? You know, what are your goals, your motivations? And a lot of patients, I think this is borne out in the landmark analysis where they say, you know, my goal is honestly to prevent this disease from getting worse over time. I want to have this, you know, I don't want this disease to progress. And a lot of times we're going over the data with interferon there. I, I'm using more and more interferon in the front line, even for older patients than historically we used to, because I think the data that's it could impair disease progression, and it's very equivalent as far as a blood count control to hydroxyurea is, qu is quite good. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? No, I agree that interferon is gaining ground. It absolutely is with Ropec interferon alpha 2b approval in PV, some nice data out of Cornell with interferon is also in PV. But I would say for ET, my practice is still mostly hydroxyurea. And just again to remind our listeners that goes back to the PT1 study where hydroxyurea was superior to anegrolide for initial choice of cytoreductive agent. So for a patient like this who's high risk because they're older than 60 and have the JAK2 mutation. And in this case, also I have a history of TIA. Any clot will make you high risk regardless of the, 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 the JAK2 mutation. So in this clearly high risk patient, I would probably go with hydroxyurea. And interferon is a very good, I think, second line agent. I use ruxolitinib as well as Andrew, you alluded to. It's off label, but it's not that hard to get. And sometimes when intolerance is an issue, or let's say symptom control is an issue, which is a bit of an unmet need with the current therapies, I will use ruxolitinib, but not in the front line. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think certainly ruxolitinib we've used more for polycythemia vera patients. I think the studies in ET have been really not as positive, right? They've been negative studies for the most part with with ET. But I think we can, when you look at the, you look at the details of those. There certainly are patients that still can benefit from jack inhibitor therapy, especially those that that have disease that, that has more constitutional symptoms, even those that have pruritus. That's the itching is the main one that seems to respond quite well. I, I have run into patients who've had just refractory itching with ET for a long period of time, but then have not been given rexalitinib due to the concern that it's not approved for that indication. It is something that can rapidly bring quality of life back to a patient. So something to not forget about, um, even though it's certainly used less frequently in that group. I guess something we hadn't talked on is we mentioned NGS panels a little bit and we were discussing type 1 and type 2 CalR mutations, but how often are you getting broad myeloid NGS you know, sequencing to look for other mutations in, in ET patients? So at our center, I must admit, we are getting them on all patients at, at presentation, the full 81 gene in-house myeloid mutation panel. But I do agree that at this time, it's not really impacting management. There is, of course, some nice work, mostly out of the Mayo Clinic, looking at certain mutations that are adverse in ET and some that are adverse in PV. TB53, for example, predicts for leukemic transformation in ET patients. There are a few others that are adverse. SRSF2 is, is, is a prominent one. But it does not impact management. I think at a center like ours or yours, Andrew, I think it's certainly from a research standpoint to get long-term data on large with large sample sizes. But right now, I wouldn't say that it impacts management. It may give some idea, of course, about the possible trajectory towards MF for AML. But since our, our drugs, as you said earlier, are really aimed at at controlling vascular risks, thrombosis and hemorrhage, that those that information doesn't add a whole lot. 
Yeah, I think it's, I agree with you. I think we get NGS panels on most of our patients with MPNs coming in. Rarely does it affect management, but sometimes it can clue you into maybe something else is going on when something like an SF3V1 mutation shows up and makes you realize maybe the patient has some anemia and you're looking for ring sideroblasts and now you're dealing with a little bit of a different disease entity. I'm optimistic about the potential for clinical trials coming down the road in ET. I think that's something that has been lacking for a long period of time. Certainly we've had a lot of trials in myelofibrosis and some in PV as well, but it does look like this is an area that is going to rapidly develop over the next five years where we're going to see more and more trials entering into the ET space. What are your thoughts there? Oh, absolutely. Zeropeg interferon alpha 2b is in a phase three already surpassed ET as it is called. It's compared to anegrolide in second line. And this is Zeropeg interferon alpha 2b, the drug that's approved for PV. And then also things like bomid MSTAD, right? So small molecules also looking interesting in early data with this drug, which is an LSD1 inhibitor showing not only the platelets coming down, but also the white cells coming down, which frankly, is probably more important in terms of reducing thrombotic risk while keeping the hemoglobin stable. So yeah, some exciting stuff on the horizon for sure. Yeah, not even to mention the upcoming kind of vaccines and monoclonal antibodies and things we've been hearing about as well. It's certainly exciting stuff down there going forward. So thanks so much for chatting with me about you patients. Always enjoy a time to catch up and have some of these discussions and I look forward to doing it again in the future. Thank you very much, Dr. Bose and Dr. Kirkendall. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Integrating Current Evidence and Individualized Treatment Regimen into Clinical Practice for Patients with Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks.